Hello, my name is Nick Schaefer, and uh, my co-host Neeraj Shah is on vacation this week. Instead of releasing nothing into the feed, I thought I would release one of our um, unreleased episodes. Before we started recording this season on aging, um, Neeraj and I recorded a number of episodes on unrelated topics that we might want to revisit later, and um, some of our early listeners expressed interest in hearing an episode that we recorded on techno-optimism. So I'm going to release this uh, pre-recorded episode on techno-optimism into the feed this week, and then we may have a chance to follow up uh, perhaps with some guests in subsequent weeks while near just on vacation. So without further ado, here's our episode on uh, techno-optimism. Looks Hello like and going. welcome to uh, Just Enough to Be Dangerous with Neeraj Shah and Nick Schaefer. How are you doing, Neeraj? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, um, I'm keeping well. I'm feeling sharp. I'm feeling ready to discuss something that I'm not too educated in. How about you? I I love discussing things I'm not educated in. <laughs> I don't know how well I discuss them, but uh, we can always find out. So today we want to talk a little bit about um, techno-optimism and maybe also um, some related issues in bioethics. Uh, so I think that uh, it would be good to sort of say what we mean by techno-optimism. And since I originally brought this topic up, I can start. Uh, by techno-optimism, I mean uh, the idea that uh, although, sure, the world has a lot of problems now, you know, be it ecological, um, social, all other kinds of problems, the progress of technology uh, is likely to be able to resolve all these problems and, and perhaps all future problems that arise. Um, and uh, whether or not that's a reasonable position to take or unreasonable and whether it's a, a harmful position to take or a, a beneficial position in some sense. Uh, so I'm going to lay my cards on the table right now. I'm going to say it is an unreasonable position. I'm, unreasonable. I'm doing it off the cuff. I'm thinking on my feet. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm happy to learn more about it because I may be completely wrong. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not an expert in giving arguments for or against this position. I would say in general, I lean in favor of techno-optimism. Um, and I think one of the most popular arguments in favor of it is, is um, looking back in history and thinking about all of the problems that present technology has solved that would have been, you know, major problems in the past that were major problems in the past. So, um, you know, it would be boring to list out all of modern technologies, but certainly there are a lot of uh, technologies that have solved major issues in the past, including vaccination, sanitation, communication, um, and uh, just like general quality of life, broadly speaking, is is higher uh, than it has been, than it was in the past. And a lot of the problems in the past have been essentially solved by present technology. And uh, techno-optimism is sort of just, you know, a seemingly straightforward extrapolation into the future. So actually, that that did just make me think that I was a bit hasty with my, <laughs> with my conclusion. I win. Uh, you win, Nicholas. No, I mean, the reason podcast. I say that... <laughs> yeah. The reason I say that is, if you do look back in history, it is... It is uh, there have been lots of examples of this. Now, like, I, I think if you if you look at different countries, so... If we, for a second, we look at Africa, 
or we look at um, different places in Asia, you could say that you could say that technology hasn't really helped, but then you could also say that really it's a people problem and not a technology problem in those areas. So maybe my conclusion is drawn more on the people part of the problem and not actually on the technology part. Okay. Yeah, I think that, I mean, this might be related to, I was thinking about uh, different ways to frame the argument against techno-optimism. And um, there's two ways that I can think of, and you can let me know uh, how your considerations about people fit into this. Um, One would be to say that, you know, your degree of techno-optimism is too high and progress in technology uh, won't be fast enough to keep up and solve all the problems that we're having. Um, so that's one possible position is just like uh, techno-optimists believe that technology is progressing faster than it actually will. The other position would be um, no technology is proceeding very quickly, but it's going to create more problems than it solves. And therefore, like, it's not really, even if it's true that it solves the existing problems, if it creates even bigger problems, then that's not really um, justification for being a techno-optimist. I, and I think that second one is is also something I've thought about. And I think it's a, a fair argument because, um, so one of the problems we had was that it was taking a long time to travel between places. So it's a historic problem. And we came up with a whole bunch of solutions to that problem. Uh, and most of them required like the use of fossil fuels and uh, combustion engines to get around the place. Now, if we look at that, we have solved a, a huge problem, but we have created a potentially catastrophic problem. Now, again, it's it's difficult to sometimes unravel where the people, I mean, because people are always, in deploying these technologies, people are always there. And you could say that oil companies knew about what was coming down the road and no one stepped in to do anything, but it, it is actually the technology that's caused it. Um, yeah, I don't know. What's your What's your thought on that one example? I think it's a classic example of like where this argument tends to, to land. Um, and my biggest concerns about this are people, um, having the technology in order to solve these problems, but, um, not taking into account, uh, externalities and just sort of generally greed being a problem in, um, you know, in the course of, uh, guiding all of civilization. So uh, I think a very plausible picture is that, you know, technology does proceed uh, very rapidly, or is developed very rapidly, and this in general creates the ability to generate wealth uh, in uh, all kinds of ways that were unforeseen in the past. And then uh, nonetheless, you know, greed sort of takes over, people discount externalities too much and you end up with some kind of like a apocalyptic scenario. I, I haven't ruled that out as a possibility. Although um, I tend on most believe days, I tend to believe that, uh, you know, we're going to be better at figuring things out than that. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully. And, you know, it's, um, I can definitely say that technology has made life in a lot of ways easier. So here we are, I'm in the UK, you're in the US. Um, we're speaking uh, across the Atlantic and everything works really well. And it's, um, it's really quite impressive when you, for a moment, when you step back and think about it. 
Yeah, it, it um, works well when you remember to hit the record button. Yeah. <laughs> this is going back to your, your question the people about people problem. being the problem. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. user error. But anyways, yes, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how it impacts our day-to-day, -day, I think it is... Um, it can be really quite a positive force. And I think it's a good reason for being techno-optimistic. Um, and I think then, yeah, so then how do you deal with that people problem? That is, uh, is always, I think, the challenge. So yeah. I guess my question is, do you, do you really have to be people-optimistic or is it a question of techno-optimism? I, I think... For many people, it's going to be hard to be people optimistic. Um, on the other <laughs> hand, like there are probably people who would argue that you can use technology to fix people problems in addition to you know um, other kinds of problems. Um, I would like to see that technology. <laughs> I, I think it's hard for me to name them off the top of my head, but I think there are technical solutions to social problems um, that are viable. Uh, it is a little bit scary in that like, there has to be some people um, controlling the technologies and um, the more advanced technology becomes in general, fewer people understand sort of how it works and therefore fewer people are in control of larger and larger amount of the, the power, um, which is, which is uh, potentially dangerous. Um, okay. So this is interesting. So previously you've, you've said you don't really like uh, adjacent um science adjacent fields science, yeah exactly okay science adjacent um fields now if we look at one so for instance one technology that everybody hopes and is marketed that will help hugely is artificial intelligence and one adjacent field there is the ethics of ai and deploying it um yeah and there's a, and exactly as you said it becomes difficult to understand what's happening and the number of people who can understand what's happening with say an AI system is, is actually very small. Um, yeah. What, what are your views on that sort of situation? Yeah. So I, um, you know, this goes back to my, you know, time studying physics and then now also, um, you know, doing data science, machine learning. Um, the annoyance that I have with sort of these uh, adjacent fields is not sort of uh, part of my sort of grand life view. It's sort of just a, a reaction to, um, you know, people who seemingly don't know very much about the actual technology wanting to sort of get in the game and then, you know, <laughs> saying stuff that doesn't really make, make a whole lot of sense. And um, I don't have strong uh, opinions about um, things like AI ethics um, other than, you know, I would sort of, try to think about it in the same ways that I think about other types of ethics. Um, so, um, you know, do no harm unto others, ideally, and, uh, you know, respect people's rights and so forth. And so to the extent that AI is, is violating those uh, kinds of basic uh, considerations about ethics, then it should be checked. Now, I understand the feeling that, you know, this new technology will need focused consideration um, from ethicists. And I'm all for that uh, in the end, um, despite my kind of like uh, more primal annoyance um, <laughs> with the with some of the people who decided to take part in that. I like the word that. primal there. Yeah. It's it's very much from deep within with inside of you, Nicholas. Yeah. Not not thinking about it very much, just kind of getting annoyed. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, um, and I think there's already been um, examples of AI systems that have acted strangely. Uh, so I think one of the famous ones was the Apple credit card, which was, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily a huge, a big social issue, but um, that where they were offering women and men vastly different amounts of credit, even if they were married. I think Steve Wozniak said him and his his wife were offered very different um, credit limits, uh, and that that was an interesting one. Yeah, so I'm a little bit shaky on my history here, but I think it you know this gets to our point about how do you find reliable information. Steve Wozniak has a history with Apple, right? So <laughs> he does, yeah. <laughs> um, you might want to double check what's going on there, but yeah, it's a. It's a tricky issue. Um, I have studied a little bit um, what techniques are around things like AI fairness. Um, and, you know, without going into too many of the technical details, in general, you're trying to optimize some kind of function. And then some of these uh, AI fairness solutions are the idea is like, well, there are a bunch of nearly optimal solutions. And so you want to find uh, the nearly optimal solution that also satisfies these sort of other constraints that we want to put in. Like, you know, it, it issues the same amount of credit to men and women. And those are sort of put in by hand. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that's a, you know, a good practical way of dealing with problems that arise without those kind of constraints in place. And so, I mean, thinking a bit further ahead, so we, we went uh, down into details there a bit of AI, but so suppose we could have a, so suppose a, a company tomorrow said, we've got a minority report system. It's going to predict criminals. Um, now crime is, I, I often think about this, crime is uh, something that we all have to deal with. Um, and generally the police are reactive. They're not proactive. So they appear, they turn up after some event has happened. So you're already a victim at that point, or someone's already a victim, and then the police will act after the fact. Um, so if you had a predictive system that might be able to stop that, um, yeah, I feel I feel that that would possibly be a good thing, but it could have many issues related to it, just as the Tom Cruise film Minority Report showed. Yeah, I, I've heard stories about these kind of crime prediction systems, uh, my first and pretty much only thought I have about these, like how, how does this, how could this possibly work? I mean, um, and, and, and what are the predictions that are actually being made? Is it about individuals who are um, committing crimes? Is it really a prediction about like this gas station is gonna be robbed at this time? Um, you know, there are certainly, I guess if you collect historical data, anything you collect historical data on, you can put it into some kind of model and make a prediction. And, um, you know, trivial aspects of the prediction, you know, are bound to come out right. Like, uh, well, I, actually, I don't know this sort of, I'm not a good enough criminal to know like what the actual <laughs> answers are here, but, um, you know, people presumably, uh, rob, uh, liquor stores at a certain time of day or maybe even day of the week. I'm not sure. Um, and so you know, if there are sort of regular patterns in those, then, you know, the, the crime prediction system can, can pick up on those patterns and make maybe uh, some possibly useful predictions. But 
it would be interesting for me to dig into how those systems actually work and what what are you know what le- at what level do they make the predictions um, without even and then I think like to my earlier point about being annoyed about people who sort of get into the ethics without understanding the actual subject, I think at that point. I might be ready to sort of uh, pontificate about the ethics of such a system, but probably not before that. Um, okay. Yeah. So I was just like, I wonder when I can imagine that there'll be a company offering that sort of capability um, possibly on an individual level at some point in the next 20, 30 years, but l- looking ahead, like what, what sort of technologies do you think might turn up to help with the problems we have now? So we said that, um, we're you know, possibly going to get into a little bit about bioethics. And uh, again, here, I think it's important to discuss the actual technology that's available um, before we, or at least at the same time as we discuss the ethics. And so uh, many people who know anything about biotechnology are very excited about um, recent advances in our ability to edit DNA. And in fact, uh, apparently um, the first gene-edited babies have already been born, which is a famous case um, that took place in China and uh, centered around uh, a person who uh, I have, I'm have i sort of only really one degree away from um, because uh, he worked closely with a professor at Rice University where I did my PhD. And uh, so there, um, you know, it's apparently already possible um, for us to make targeted edits um, in the germline of human cells and uh, bring those um, cells, you know, um, through the process of reproduction and, you know, um, have that germline edit be sustained in a, in a live human. Um, and so here, uh, on the optimistic side, we have the ability to, um, for example, correct uh, DNA variants that would have predisposed you to all kinds of terrible diseases like cancer and neurodegeneration. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that, that that's going to gain steam during our lifetime, and there are going to be many ethical questions around it. So, so I, I'm totally initiated in in this in this area, and when I hear gene editing, like my mind immediately goes to games like Deus Ex, or like those films where you, you see like massively augmented humans. Um, like I don't, for some reason, I completely skip out all the the less, you know, like the the incremental steps that take you there, and I just think immediately of like augmented humans. Um, I don't know why that is, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, I can see that there'd be a whole bunch of ethical questions as as the technology um, progresses. Uh, I can't even imagine what they might include. It's, uh, it feels like a really interesting topic because ultimately, you know, ultimately people are in control of their own bodies. And I wonder whether governments will get in the way of that. Yeah. Right now, all of, essentially all of mainstream science is united against the idea of um, making edits in the human germline, uh, meaning like edits that can be passed down from one generation to another. Um, there are, on the other hand, um, active clinical trials in 
making edits in other types of cells in the human body for the purpose of, um, you know, clinical therapies. And uh, so there, um, you know, uh, people are not as concerned about uh, making those kinds of, of uh, edits to the to DNA. Um, one thing that I think is going to keep this from you know being a major problem in the near term is is we simply we don't understand enough to you know in a single round of edits uh, turn somebody into a Deus Ex character. Okay. Um, it's That's just, reassuring. It's just beyond us uh, at the moment, um, but that probably won't always be the case. Um, and one thing that's that's already happening, which is you know not illegal, um, is um, people who, for example, are doing in vitro fertilization, they are able to choose um, the embryos that they want to implant, and they can sequence. Uh, the embryos and find out things like their predisposition to having diseases, but also things like the likelihood of having a certain hair or eye color or being a certain height. Um, and so people are apparently already making choices about um, their, you know, their kids' physical attributes and possibly psychological attributes, um, not by editing, but by choosing from among the sort of the available options. That, um, I don't know why I feel slightly uncomfortable about that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's something about diversity and evolution that I, I often is think it because about. you're afraid you would not have been selected. Oh, this is quite possible. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I was I was told that I was an accidental child. Uh, so oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. definitely not then. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But still, nonetheless, I was an appreciated but accidental child. That's the. the but I mean, yeah, there is some appreciated. <laughs> hopefully, <yeah. laughs> I've worked on it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had to prove your worth. Exactly, that's right. I wasn't the firstborn, unfortunately. He just got a free pass. Um, yeah. So no, I, I don't know why. I, I always think about um, the gene pool and evolution and how it's good to have a pretty varied gene pool, and. I think that's what ultimately ultimately makes me feel a bit uncomfortable about this stuff. Um, there is utility in having diversity and randomness, uh, but that's kind of on a overall scale. Like for an individual family, they probably don't care about randomness and evolution. I mean, a much more common objection is something like, "Yeah, these technologies are." maybe good for families, um, but, you know, they're only going to be accessible to a certain group of people, you know, who have the resources. Um, and I think that's, it's more or less inevitable in the short term. And so, um, one thing to consider there is, um, whether you're, you're for it in that situation existing in the short term for the benefit at potential benefit in the long term, um, where it's sort of more widely available. It's an interesting, um, point to to think about um in the evolution of this technology that's uh yeah <laughs> you left me with a slight sense of discomfort but um, <laughs> um i mean another technology that it, like um something i'm a bit more aware of is carbon sequestration i think that's moving forward and um there will i'm sure be unintended unintended consequences out of that 
uh, process. So one thing that comes to mind right away is um, it's sort of the argument that it makes people, how to say, um, think that it's okay to just sort of release more carbon, right? So if you if you're under if what your understanding is that like carbon sequestration technology is coming along great and it's going to be here in the near future, you may choose to sort of just release more carbon into the atmosphere. So I'm by no means saying that. But um, I think it's something that we're going to need in the near future. So that's why I take hope in that it's um, it's progressing uh, reasonably. Well, at least they're, they're trying things, you know. So that's always the first step of progress. Um, whether that's sequestering the carbon underground in um, empty petroleum wells or in, in, uh, in the sea, or even, in fact, uh, just planting more trees or, or planting more seagrass which are very like non-technological um, approaches. But yeah, I think there's a, a whole bunch of stuff there. And never mind the, the renewable energy um, efforts that are going on, which I think we'll see a lot of a lot more uh, in the future. I mean, fusion is actually, I've been reading a lot more news about fusion uh, in recent times. And it seems to be something that's gaining a lot of traction. I never really thought I'd ever see fusion in my lifetime, at least when I was, the closest I ever came to studying around it, um, just didn't think that it was ever really going to be an option, but it seems like they're making progress. Yeah. You know the joke about this, right? No, I don't. <laughs> it's all, it's always 25 years away. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been that way for, you know, it's basically since it was discovered as a phenomenon. Okay. All right. Well, it's 25 years away. That's what I'm hearing, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Some reason to be skeptical about that, but yeah, um, I'm thinking like what other what other kinds of um, things might you be techno optimistic about? Uh, we talked a little bit about you know biotechnology, some a little bit about climate change and carbon. Um, every once in a while, um, people become very concerned about you know being able to feed the planet and and food shortages. Um, do you have any? any knowledge of um, where kind of food technology is and uh, whether there are major concerns about there being food enough for, uh, for the future populations. So all the stuff I've read recently is that um, there isn't too much concern. We have a bigger problem with food waste than necessarily producing food. So it depends how much you want to account for continued waste of 30% of food supplies. Um, and if we don't account for that, then there's probably uh, plenty, but we should probably account for something. Uh, and, I, and I think there is loads that we could do here in terms of just being better with the way we produce the food. Um, I mean, there's a few tensions going on because I think there is a desire to have more organic farming where we don't use so many chemical pesticides and, and such, but usually they're lower yields. They require... Um, yeah, and they, they, they require more land. So <clears throat> I'll be interested to see where that where that ends up. I'm sure there's loads of tech. I mean, we've seen it with GMO foods and you and also preferential uh preferential breeding amongst uh plants. So I think there's loads there. Let me ask you this. Are you concerned about eating genetically modified foods? Uh, no, I don't really think about it. I don't know if I have. I probably have. Are they available? I see it's not I think, something I, I Well, yeah. So I think countries differ and maybe even locales differ in 
whether or not you're required to label uh, something as being genetically modified. Okay. Um, but yes, I think that, I mean, that tells you right away that, you know, they're being sold. Yeah. And, and, but then on, on a similar uh, vein, what about um, lab grown meat? Is that something that you would go for, Nicholas? Well, it doesn't, I mean, it does have the natural kind of ick factor, um, but that's again, not, not rational, right? I mean, um, the only reason why that seems any more disgusting than, you know, natural meat is because you're not thinking about how the natural meat is, is sort of produced and gets onto <laughs> yeah, your plate, right? <laughs> which is like, it's got to be much worse than, uh, than essentially any lab grown meat. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it's not something that I think that there are, maybe you can buy lab grown meat. It's not something that I've, um, really tried to do. I think it's a, I, I buy the sort of strictly rational argument for it. Um, and so I'm interested to see the technology progress. So that's a yes, you would eat it. Not really. It's just a, <laughs> like, a, you know, I'm for, you know, if you guys like it and you want to work on it, then I'm, I'm for it. Um, but say you were, <clears throat> you're faced the, with the option of like a beef burger or a lab grown beef burger. Would you... At this point, I would, you know, I've eaten many non-lab grown burgers, so I would try the lab grown one. Okay. All right. Um, if so I, you are... if it was just like a, you know, people are saying here, try these two things. Okay. Um, because uh, again, like the sort of strictly rational side of me knows that there's sort of a lot of horror associated with the, the non-lab grown meat. And so I'd be interested in trying it in the hopes that, you know, it would be good and would eventually be a solution that leads us away from uh, having to produce meat the way we currently do. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, <laughs> I think there probably is a lot of horror in it in terms of like what the animals are fed and uh, how, <laughs> especially factory farming. I think, like you say, it might be preferential to eat something that's lab Yeah, I, I, I bought a chicken and brought it home, uh, like just like a grocery store, rotisserie chicken uh, and brought it home. And I was having a discussion with my family, my wife's family as we ate it. And, and uh and they're like, oh, the first question, of course, comes up is price. How much does it cost? $5. Oh, that's a really good deal. You know, okay, $5. How do they do that? And then my wife says to her mom, you know, that that chicken couldn't walk. You know that, right? And she's like, what? You know, and, and we had a little bit of a discussion. And I checked the label. And, of course, it doesn't say on the label whether or not the chicken can walk. Um, but, you know, good chance that it couldn't, um, given all the way yeah. a lot of the, the meat is raised. Yeah, I would say so, too. I think they would advertise a free-range a free range situation, but okay. That's uh, interesting. And then like to finish up, how about, um, any, any technological requests that you have, Nicholas, like, what would you, what would you love to see that would help you in your life? So one of the most sort of frustrating, um, aspects like lack of progress for me has been in, um, lack of progress around treating neurodegeneration. Hmm. Um, you know, the neurodegeneration has been sort of uh, recognized and understood for, for decades. And in those decades, if you compare to, for example, the progress against cancer, which is not complete by any means, but, you know, there have been leaps and bounds in treating cancer and basically, you know, basically no advancements in, in treating neurodegeneration. And so um, that is actually, you know, while I was still attempting to go down the academic path, that's what I was going to focus on and was unsuccessful in getting any university uh, after 170 tries to uh, fund my uh, research plan. 
And, you know, and my observation is that we're still not making any progress on this. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful, loss, Nicholas. Uh, I'm hopeful that we will, uh, you know, we'll turn that ship around, uh, sometime in my lifetime, but, um, yeah, that's been, that's been very frustrating and, uh, is near the top of my list in terms of areas where I'd like to see technology progress. What about you? I, I really, uh, would just love a Star Trek style, uh, transporter. So okay. if someone could work on that, straight that to would the be ridiculous. Great. That... <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> what would you use it for? What would you to get around? Like it would be uh, so much quicker to get around. Avoid driving. Avoid driving. Avoid flying. Yeah, no, you could travel anywhere. Okay. Uh, but until then, Hyperloop looks. I don't know what's going to happen with Hyperloop. Uh, I don't know if that will ever actually. Is that be... like a high-speed subway, essentially? Yeah, exactly. Where people, I think, go in pods and speed around the place. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I don't know if we've learned just enough to be dangerous about techno optimism here or not, but we attempted uh, something. I'm pretty sure we're in the dangerous uh, zone of this of our level of knowledge. Okay. Well, um, thanks for joining me. And uh, until next time, then I have to think of a sign-off message. Yeah, we, we need a sign-off. I think that was pretty good, Nick. Okay, should I stop the recording? Yeah.